Good morning. Let me add uh, my welcome. I'm glad you're here with us. I'm excited to be here. It's been a fun weekend around the counter. Um, we had uh, a great time Friday night. So a few of us gathered for the first annual, or I don't know what, Nerf night, and it was super exciting, super fun running around. And uh, at the same time this weekend, our junior high group is away on a retreat with some amazing leaders having an awesome time. And now, if we've never met, my name is Tim. I'm the executive pastor. I've been here like five months, so I feel like the new guy, but five months and encounters like eternity. So, um, you know, that's who I am. But previously, I, like, I did youth ministry uh, for the last 20 years. So this is the first time I've been involved in a church that had a retreat and I wasn't on it. But what's cool is my son Vinny is on it. So it's weird to be on the other side of a retreat like this to have uh, leaders pouring into him. And so here's the thing. We know like when we do youth and children's stuff, we're very concerned to make sure you have at least one adult for every five students or kids. Like we're talking about worship jam. We need lots of adults to uh, make sure we have a great event. But research has found, Fuller Youth Institute did a lot of work on this, that what a child to a teenager needs by the time they head off to college, uh, it's not one adult for every five kids, it's five adults for every child. Every teenager needs five adults who have invested in them and love them and know them. Uh, if we want to see their faith cemented and rooted in the church, that's five additional adults outside of the family through that, through that time. And so if you've ever wondered like how you can impact God's kingdom, how you can help uh, see uh, young people continue to follow Jesus. If you ever wonder, what does it feel like to be an answer to prayer, right? The, everything a parent wants is other adults to care and love, about, love their kids. Check that box on the card about being interested in helping with children and students, and you can do that. You can be a part of seeing God's kingdom advance and work in the lives of young people, um, and you're going to love it. It's the best. You get to play Nerf and go on retreats with middle school kids, and there's nothing better. So we are continuing here, though, in week two of Fatal Failure, and we're going to be looking uh, at a pretty famous character from the Bible, David, and David is known, right, for a lot of things, but the two sort of big moments in David's life, uh, one of which is when David, like, slays Goliath, the giant, and then the other is sort of more towards the end of his time when David has a huge failure uh, in his affair um, or abuse of Bathsheba, right? And that's real famous. And we're going to be looking at a different one kind of in the middle because David's life was full of like big highs and big lows. If you're someone who's felt like your life has had huge ups and downs, right, that it hasn't been even, you've, you've seen the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, David's for you. And we're going to look at one of those moments in the middle of his life where he experienced a low and a high and how God used that fatal failure to bring him back up the mountain. So a little, little background. Here's the situation we find God's people in. So when David comes into the story, Saul is king. And Saul became king because as God's people got established, in Israel, in the promised land, they looked around and they saw all these other nations and the other nations all had like these really cool kings 
and it seemed to work out for them. So, and God had set up his people, so like judges and priests would lead, because God was like, I'm the king, I'll be in charge, I'll have these spiritual people, help you relate to me, it's going to be great. And God's people were like, no, we want a king. And God was like, you don't want a king, right? If you've been a parent, you know, it's like in the toil. No, we want a king. Look, they have a king. Kings are great. No, you don't want a king. No, we have a king. And so eventually, God says, fine, okay, I'm going to let you have a king, but the king has to remember who the king of kings is. We sang about that. So Saul was the first king of Israel, right? They've been around a while, but Saul was the first king. And he was the one who was in charge when David uh, came and fought Goliath. And that was a bit of a low because everybody assumed that David, he was the youngest. He was kind of the runt of his family. He wasn't allowed to fight. He wasn't a warrior. And he's living in this low, which moves to an incredible high when he defeats Goliath. He's brought into Saul's inner circle. He gains popularity. He becomes a leader in the army. Uh, people start to sing songs about him, about he being greater than Saul. And meanwhile, Saul who was installed to be the king under God, starts a descent into thinking, no, he's the king. And he goes from thinking David is amazing to not being a big fan because David is taking all the glory from him. At one point, Saul tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. Now, like, I don't know what your job reviews are like, right? But if your boss tries to pin you to the wall with a spear, they're not happy with you, right? And so David ends up having to go into hiding. He went from the champion of the people to running away from the king and living in hiding, fearing for his life. And so while this is happening then, uh, because Saul isn't leading well, the enemies of God's people, the Philistines, come in and they sack the land. They take Jerusalem, uh, they take stuff out of the temple, they defeat Saul, and Saul's killed in the battlefield, which then leads to David's Next rise. David comes in. He's anointed the next king. He rallies the people, defeats the Philistines, takes back Jerusalem. And that's where our story begins. He's back on top. David is coming into the light. But what had happened is that when the Philistines had sacked Jerusalem, they took out of there the Ark of the Covenant. And we've talked about this before here, but the Ark is a box a very ornate box that holds uh, the very important religious artifacts of God's people, the Ten Commandments, Moses' staff, some manna, all that kind of stuff. And it's described as having cherubim, like these angel beings on there, right? It's very ornate. It's very special. It is essentially God's seat. It is God's throne. They understand that God's presence rests on the ark, so there's very special rules about it. And so the ark being taken out of Jerusalem, out of the city, out of the temple, right? It's very much sort of this manifestation of God is taken out. And so the full restoration will happen when the ark is brought back into the city, back into the temple. So David sets out to do this. Um, and we're going to be looking in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, if you need the Bible in front of you, that's page 211. No shame in using the reference, we're also phone-friendly, so feel free to, you know, use your app or your own Bible. Um, and we're gonna, I'm going to kind of be giving an overview, but we'll look at a few uh, verses as we go. But 2 Samuel chapter 6. So, it begins, and David, David gathers 30,000 men. This is a big group of people. And he gathers them to go out and bring the 
ark back in a celebration. They're going to have a parade. And they even made a brand new cart for it. So they are like amped up. They've got a new cart. They've got all these people. They're going to go get the ark. They're going to bring it back. God will be back in the city. And so they kick the whole thing off with a parade. And it says in verse 5 that they are celebrating with all their might. 30,000 people at least celebrating with all their might the return of the ark to Jerusalem. But there's a problem. They get to a spot and there's oxen pulling the cart and the oxen stumble and Uzzah, who's kind of an important person, is near it and it says he reaches out his hand to stabilize it so it doesn't fall and he touches the ark of the covenant. Now, if you've read like sort of the Old Testament rules or like seen Indiana Jones, you know that you don't mess with the Ark of the Covenant. God had very specific rules. It was very, uh, very laid out who could and could not touch the Ark. And so despite his intentions, it was seen as irreverent, and God struck him down in the spot. And we don't know. I would like, there's certain times you read the Bible, like, I wish they would have said what happened. Because I imagine one of two things happened. Right, this happens, God strikes him down dead, and either the place just probably, like, does it go quiet, and everybody's like, what, what just happened? Right? Or was there, like, panic and chaos, like, what just happened? You know, like, we don't, like, we don't know, but we know it disrupted the whole thing. And this plan that had been put in place falls apart. And David's response isn't sadness that the ark is going to be returned, but it's anger. It's the first clue that David is, David had made this about him. David was looking for his victory, his moment of bringing the ark, and it had been interrupted, and he's angry about it. This happens in our lives, doesn't it? Like, we have these great plans. Maybe it's a birthday party. Maybe uh, it's a gift. Maybe it's just like a weekend alone or a day off, and then something interrupts it. Someone is sick you got to go into work. Or your day off where you were just going to like do whatever you wanted. One of the kids is sick. The car breaks down. Something happens. You had these dreams and they fall apart. Sometimes it's bigger. You had this dream. You were smart in high school. And you were good at sports and things came easy. So you were going to go to college. Right? And it would be easy. And you were going to meet the love of your life. And you were going to be offered five jobs. You would get married, two and a half kids, white picket fence. It was going to be amazing. And then it fell apart. It fell apart. Some, it fell apart because you drank too much. And you never finished. And you're stuck with $50,000 in debt. And you're like, what happened? What happened? Or the job never came. The relationship never came. We have these plans and they go awry. And then we get angry and we blame everything else and everyone else. David's next response after anger is fear. This is David. David fought a giant as a kid with no armor. David was able to survive and hide from the king and all of his armies. David fought the Philistines who had just won the battle. And now David's also afraid. Something has ruptured his relationship with God. He had gone in with these plans. He wanted to be the one who brought the ark back. He wanted to be the one who had made it happen. He wanted to finish 
his legacy, and it was all falling apart. And he was angry and afraid, and so they stuck the ark uh, they say at the house of Obed-Edom, and it's sort of on the edge of the land. And they kind of stuck the ark there. And that's what we do when our plans fall apart, don't we? We, like, we keep God close, but not too close. This didn't work for me. This didn't work out. So God, you can just stay right over there because I'm angry and I'm afraid and I don't know if I can trust you. So I'm going to leave you over here. But something changes, and um, we don't get that. But, uh, but while it's there, here's the thing. David's fatal failure was thinking that because he was the king, he was the king. Right? He'd lost that understanding that God had established him as king to lead and serve the people under the kingship of God. And David was starting to make it about him. Uh, we learn later, the first clue is that you're not supposed to put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. God's law was clear. Only the Levitical priests were supposed to carry the Ark. It was very particular. In fact, you can read about it. This is a Bible, ADD. I have ADD, so I might do this. Um, so it, what's cool is this story is also recounted in 1 Chronicles 15. So you know like we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can read different views of the life of Jesus. A bunch of the Old Testament stories are actually in there twice. So you can read this in... Uh, for Samuel, but you can also read it uh, in First or Second Chronicles 15. And in there, they make very special mention that this was supposed to be carried by the priest. David went around it the wrong way. Um, he was treating it like he was the king, and this was going to be his celebration. He forgot who the king was. Because you see, here's what kings did in the Bible, in the ancient world. Kings ordered their world, right? They didn't just give orders. They decided how the world should go. Kings make final judgment. What a king says goes. And kings are special and they're the center of the universe. Right? And now this is the king of kings, right? God sets the world in order. He makes final judgment. He's the center of the universe. But when a man becomes a king, they mistake themselves for being the one who sets their world to order, makes final judgment, and are the center of the universe. And while we don't have actual kings, some places, I guess, have kings and queens, um, that struggle to be in charge is still in us. This shows up when you drive your car. No, it's like, so here's the deal, right? If someone, if you're driving and someone in front of you is driving too slow, right? You're annoyed because they are driving too slow. That's not how this should be going. And you are in my way. You are inconveniencing me because I'm the center of the universe. But if someone behind you is driving too fast, that's annoying too. You're driving too fast. You're scaring me. You're putting me in danger. You are not driving the way you should because I am the center of the universe and I have decided this is what it should be. Our standard is us. This happens when we look at other people's lives, right? If you catch yourself saying, well, that person, they, they're selfish. They shouldn't have a house that big. Or they don't need a car that nice. Right? Our standard of what's an appropriate house to have. Meanwhile, we're all like in the top, like if you have a microwave and a garage opener and a bathroom inside, you're like in the top 10% of the world. But our scale is where we are. And then we pass judgment on people who don't. Well, they don't deserve a house because they're lazy. They don't work hard enough. They should have dug in like I did. We set ourselves as 
the standard, this shows up with parents and kids, right? Um, because they are our princes and princesses, and we want our world ordered around them. So being in youth ministry, I, we, I interact a lot with teachers. By the way, I'm just going to like, I think teachers are amazing. We just, if you're a teacher, thank you. Like, listen, here's the deal. Like, nobody, but nobody is like, you know what I want to do for a career? I want to be underpaid. I want to work way too much. I want to spend my day in, like, a living Petri dish of 30, like, snotty, sick, like, disease-ridden, right? Like, nobody, and nobody, but then, like, for some reason, we think, like, they're not on our child's side, Right? Like, look, there's a lot of political debate about school shootings, but here's one thing that's true. There's never been a story where the teacher did not put themselves between the children and the shooter. Right? And yet, when the king is not happy with how the teacher treats their children. So we're meeting with these teachers, uh, junior high teachers, and encouraging them and listening to them. And one told a story um, of, this is junior high, so maybe they're in seventh grade. Seventh grade math test, and a kid got like a C. And you know, like, that's it. That's it. You're never going to work at NASA. Your career's done. you got a C in seventh grade math. And so, of course, the parent, right? But the parent comes in furious because the king or the queen is offended. And it's, you know, arguing with the teacher about the kid's grade. It's gonna, I don't know what it's going to mean. So finally, the teacher says, you know what? You give them a grade. What grade do you want them to get? And the parent's response is incredible. And it's in all of us. Parents' response is, I want them to get the grade they deserve. And the teacher's like, that's what I did. But in the end, the parent wanted to order the world, where in their way of arranging the world, it wasn't their child's fault, and they deserved the A. The world was not operating the way they wanted. This has gotten out of hand, where now research shows parents are writing kids' entrance exams for college. No, it gets better. Showing up at the first job interview. Could you imagine? I'm just like, picture this. Somebody's like an IT recruiter. Well, you know, Billy, we weren't sure if you were going to make it as a web developer, but mom, you really convinced me. <laughs> I mean, think about it, right? So, what drives that? That's not like we talk, oh, it's helicopters. It is this notion of, I don't trust the world. It's not operating the way we want. They won't, they won't understand who my kid is, so I am going to control things. I'm going to order things, right? And I'm going to step in and make sure everyone knows how this is supposed to go. And we all do it. We all do it. Um, I got into ministry, so I, I know I look really young, but I graduated high school in 1991. Like, oh, you're actually, I thought you were older. But um, <laughs> I... I was a, uh, and I am, a geek and a nerd. I've always been so, before it was cool, like pre-Big Bang Theory, before everybody realized how like, good it was to be a nerd, right, and cool. And, um, but it led to opportunities. So I was working right out of high school in a mailroom, and it was at a time when computers were changing, and I was down with it, and they literally moved me out of the mailroom into the IT department, right? Like I was one of those kind of like people where it was like, the old guys in the department didn't know how to use PCs, and this kid, who had, I didn't even start taking computer classes, right, had got moved out of the mailroom into the IT department to manage the PCs. And so my career was up and to the right. 
right? Opportunities were endless, money was good, um, I was single, I had toys, uh, and it was good. But at the same time, God was calling me into ministry, right? I had my plan of how my world was going to go, and God called me into ministry, which led to sort of a clash of uh, burnout. And I actually ended up, and I don't know what direction it is, like at Gull Lake, it's like an hour away, uh, family worked there, and it's sitting on a dock and journaling. It's one of the few times in my life where I really feel like, like I heard God's voice, right, saying, look and see what I can do, right? And that meant letting go and saying, this isn't going to be about the way I want to order my world. Um, And it's continual. It goes on and on. Uh, My wife and I are here because my last church um, had to make some business decisions. Money was tight. They had to limit some positions. I don't know that it was a great youth pastor, but like my job had to go. And I I probably would have made the same decisions. Um, But I I first started looking again, like at IT management positions. It's been 20 years in ministry. It just seemed nice to like stay in our house, stay with our friends, probably get paid better. I'm assuming IT work pays more than church. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and then like God sticks in front of us, encounter. And my wife and I had months earlier, seeing things coming, had wrestled with, you know, if I get a youth ministry job somewhere, we can go anywhere. But if, um, if I'm going to try this executive pastor thing, we want to live near family, so we should only consider roles in Grand Rapids. My wife's family's from here, Chicago. Um, but it meant I had to take my universe and set it aside. Uh, and I can't stop smiling. And it, I love it. And it doesn't mean it's easy. And I'm not saying, like... Like, working at a church isn't special or makes you more spiritual. That was God's call on my life. Um, And it's not easy, right, leaving and transitioning. Um, But it meant setting aside plans and saying, okay, God, what do you have for us? And we all deal with this. And so something happens in David's life. And three months later, David catches word that God has blessed this household of Obed-Edom where the ark is. Right? It's a sign that God's favor is resting, and it's in the land. But there's also something that's changed in David's heart. And the first clue is that he transitions to having the Levites, who we don't even know if he brought the spiritual leaders the first time. So he brings them three months later to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. And here's what's crazy. So it says in verse 13, when those who are carrying the ark, so we know now the Levites are carrying the ark of the Lord, when they had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, right? And we, it's interesting, like we like six-step programs, right? Six steps to a healthier you, six steps to a better career, six steps to a better relationship. But this is like six steps to giving what you were doing to the Lord. And it's like six literal steps, right? 30,000 people march an entire six steps. And they stop and they offer a sacrifice. And so before the celebration, before the craziness, before the dancing, before the worship, is a quiet moment of reverence and commitment to the Lord. David's starting to get it right. He's recognizing who the king is. But it continues, wearing a linen ephod, verse 14, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. So they've made their sacrifice. David's going crazy. But the key to this is the linen ephod, which is... It's like a big apron thing, um, but it was the garment that priests wore. 
right? So when it says David's wearing a linen ephod, what it means is he took off his priestly robes or his king robes. He took off his crown and he dressed as a priest. He dressed as a worship leader, right? You could translate ephod to like skinny jeans, right? <laughs> it's, thank you. Um, he, uh, he's decided to not be, at a time when the king was revered and up high, he's decided to lead worship. This has also led to some confusion because, because it is kind of an open flowing ephod. If that's all he was wearing, it would be very like exposed, right? Um, but we read in First Chronicles, he was wearing a priest's robe underneath the ephod. It leads to a mistranslation later. Um, but it just says that he humbled himself at a time, right, when the king was separate and special. The king was near, a near God back then. And he's decided to take his place as the worship leader. That his job uh, isn't the victory. His job is to lead his people in worship of God. And so he continues, right? And he takes the six-step process. And can you imagine what our lives, I think about this, like, what would our lives look like if every time we had to make some transition from one thing to another that took six steps, we actually stopped and prayed and committed what was next to the Lord, right? Like going into a class, how much better would it be if you're like, hey, God, I'm going in. Like how much nicer would we be at restaurants and supermarkets if we committed our time shopping, our meetings, our relationships, dinner, Right? If, if the six-step process was literally six steps, take a moment and pray and offer it to the King of Kings. And can I stop here and say that no matter how much you've screwed up, no matter what's happened to you, and as a result of it, you have set God to the side, that God is a God who restores and that God is a God who meets you when you stop and pray. What David did seems little, but what David did was massively horrible. You did not break God's commands. Um, a guy died because of how David had led the people. The Lord's presence was not in Jerusalem. The, the ark was not in the temple. He was failing as king. And God restored him because he stops to offer a sacrifice. And while we don't have kind of the weird rules and arc thing, we are not actual kings or queens, we can learn from David's posture, right? From David recognizing his failure was fatal, and the answer was in sacrifice, was in worship, was in humbling himself, and God restored him. And so then David continues, right? He continues in humility, and when they get to Jerusalem, he stops again to offer a sacrifice, so it's been an amazing parade, and he stops again and offers it. Now they're transitioning into the temple. Offers another sacrifice to the Lord to commit that time to him. David, and he, it's interesting too, there's like these you know, leadership axioms of the leaders need to be up and in the back and watching, and David's like, no, the leader needs to be in front and be the servant and the worship leader. The people needed to see uh, that even though he was the king, he followed the true king. David was the priestly king. So they get to Jerusalem, he offers the sacrifice, and then he does one more act that's incredible. He sends everyone home with food, which is nice, right? But he's caring for people's needs. But like back then, if a king threw a party, right, the, the king threw a party and invited all the important people in to come be impressed with the king's wealth, 
and the king's food, and it revolved around the king. The king didn't just take the food and give it back to the people. That, doesn't, that didn't jive with how a king operated back then. But David's party, his final food party, was to send everyone home to be taken care of. David was caring for his people as the priest king. And it seems like that's going to be great, and it's all going to work out. But things start to unravel a little bit, because he goes home, and David's wife, uh, Michal or Michael, it's a little complicated, it's not romantic, and if you're looking for like a Bible study on biblical marriage, just, you know, go past David. All right, because, so, Michal had been Saul's daughter, right? So she had seen the king who liked being king. She'd seen the parties. She'd seen the king be separate. And she was, when David was at his high point, given to David as his wife. Then you have the whole spear, David, and hiding thing. So she was given to someone else. Then David comes back into the situation. He's like, I kind of liked her. One of many, again, not romantic. And he goes and gets her. And the Bible actually talks about the other guy like crying, like it's sad, as they take her away. And we don't know if she wanted to stay with the guy or if she, it seems like she was down with being the queen again, being married to the king. But she makes the same fatal failure David had made earlier. So as he comes in, she, it says, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. One translation says, had contempt for him. He wasn't the king she wanted. She wanted the king who would stay in charge. And then it says how the king of Israel, this is being sarcastic, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, of his servants, right? She's saying you have servants and those servants have slaves and you're exposed in front of them as any vulgar fellow would. This is also where that like, transition issue, like, translation issue with the ephod thing comes in. The word is actually just sort of exposed and vulnerable. It doesn't mean necessarily half naked. It's just, I don't know, someone chased that narrative too far. But the point is, he's the king. He's not supposed to be dancing and silly in front of the people. And David's change of heart, though, is reflected in his response. He says, I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. He was concerned about them and not himself in that moment. He, he put down his crown, and he put on his priest, priest robes. So for David, there was a literal voice telling him to take his place as king, to be separate, to be special, to order the world. And we face that same temptation and voice. Right? You're smart. You're better. You deserve it. That we should be in charge. That we're better than everyone else. That we're of greater value. That we should be kings. And that voice is deadly. It's deadly. Because that voice causes you to cling to a crown that's killing us. Right? A toxic relationship. I can, it'll get better. I can handle it. Maybe it's a job you need to leave, but you can't Get up the strength because it's what you know. Maybe it's a job you need to stay in, be content with because it's where God has you. Maybe it's a test you need to fail because you didn't study, right? And you ordered your world and it didn't work out. Maybe it's a pattern. Maybe 
you need to stop thinking you can handle everything and you're in charge and be honest with your doctor about how you're feeling. Maybe you have an addiction and constantly saying, I'll change, it'll get better, I can handle it, isn't working anymore. And it's time to set down your crown and admit you can't control the world. But you can worship someone who does, because kings order their world. And so that is our fatal failure, thinking that God made us to be kings. But God had a different, a different image in mind. See, you and I are called to be priests. We're called to follow in David's example, to be priests and not kings. Instead of thinking that God gave us the right to be in charge, right? That God gave us an invitation to join him in his work of redeeming the world. Because, see, kings order their world, but priests serve their world. Kings make judgments, but priests offer sacrifices. Kings are very self-important, and priests find their identity as a child of God. Kings tell people how to live their lives, and priests point people to the one who can save their lives. Kings make demands, but priests offer hope. Our good king invites us into his life and his kingdom. It's even why I think the New Testament writers moved to just talking about our relationship with God like family. It's our heavenly father who adopts us to be a part of his work and what he's doing. And this whole thing of priests didn't end with the Old Testament because Peter, uh, reflecting on it after Jesus' death and resurrection, says this, but you were a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Recognizes that God didn't um, call us to hide. He didn't call us to keep our crowns and to build walls, but to be a priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. To point people to the God who forgives, the God who restores, the God who offers life. The creator of the universe has invited us to join in his redemptive work. And we don't serve a distant, angry king. We don't do it out of fear. We do it because of the example Jesus gave for us. In a second, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2. And there's an image in Philippians chapter 2, which is Paul has this beautiful hymn about what Jesus did for us. And in it, the image is one of Jesus not holding on to being equal with God. That Jesus set aside his equality with God for us. Right, that the king that we serve, the savior we serve, that we follow, made the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate gift of service in giving up all of his rights as being equal with God. And he invites us into that. So would you stand and I'll read this as our prayer. Philippians chapter 2. And our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, you are the one we serve. You are the one we love and you are the one we worship. 